begin. Hi, I'm Michelle Cordero. And I'm Rob Bluey. And welcome to a special edition of Mass App, where we're going to talk about the importance of Thanksgiving. We have Arthur Millick with us. Arthur is the Associate Director of Heritage's B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics. Arthur does research and is an expert on America's founding principles. Thanks for joining us, Arthur. Thanks for having me. So Thanksgiving is just days away, and I don't know about you guys, but I love Thanksgiving. And even if my family isn't doing anything big or orchestrated, it's still always a fun day. I just think that deliberate reflection on what I'm thankful for feels good. And I hold my family close, and we eat good food, and we root for the Cowboys. And the Cowboys always play on Thanksgiving because they're America's team. (laughs) And it, it feels American, and it's great. So, Arthur, only a few countries set aside a day of national thanks. Why do you think these reflection days are so important for our society? Sure. So, uh, taking a step back, the question is, why do we have national holidays at all? And I think that our founders express themselves with a lot of clarity as to why. Uh, One is that this is a time to unify the public mind, to elevate it above our private experiences, and to reflect together as a nation. Uh, Nations need from time to time for their minds to be all at once unified on one common topic. You have an experience of a kind of common fate and a faith, and uh, it establishes a national character. And I think that our two most famous and I think most important national holidays prove that, and they uh, emphasize and show two different parts of our national holiday. Uh, The first is the 4th of July. The 4th of July is a celebration of courage and assertiveness and sacrifice for principles. And the fireworks that we see on the 4th of July is meant to reflect the kind of – it it reflects war, cannon fire. And it's meant to remind citizens who don't have day-to-day direct experiences of war what that kind of sacrifice might take. It reminds them of it since they don't live it every day. So – The 4th of July is about assertiveness and courage. And Thanksgiving is the opposite. The 4th of July is about bigness and grandeur. And the 4th of July in a certain way, uh, excuse me, Thanksgiving in a certain way, is an experience of our own smallness. We're grateful to something greater than ourselves. And so all of our founders thought that these kinds of national holidays were important to establish these qualities in our character, to remind us that we can be a free and therefore assertive people, on the one hand, but that a free and assertive people must also be grateful and feel small sometimes in the presence of something greater than themselves. You know, it's actually proven, I think, in the past decade, psychologists have come out and asked people to write gratitude journals um, and that you people with anxiety or depression, if they keep these gratitude journals, it, it helps them feel better. So, again, our founders are proving themselves brilliant. Well, and let's take a closer look at George Washington's role. You know, I had the, the great opportunity to visit Mount Vernon just yesterday, and we love taking our kids to Mount Vernon. We're members of Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon, of course, is the George Washington estate um, in Virginia, where um, it's just a wonderful place to be. And and Arthur, in, in doing some research on Washington's role in Thanksgiving, this predated his his presidency. In fact, uh, this article from Mount Vernon from uh, Professor T.K. Byron of Dalton State College notes that it was during the American Revolution that um, the colonial legislatures first set 
set aside days of prayer to recognize military victories against the British Army. And it was Washington, while he was commander of the Continental Army, who agreed and proclaimed on December 18, 1777, the first national Thanksgiving Day. Of course, he followed that up later in 1789 by designated designating November 26th as the National Day of Thanks. Can you speak to Washington's role in Thanksgiving's history? Sure. In fact, I, from what I understand, Thanksgiving in, in an odd way predates even that. That's it, right. It, it predates um, – our republic and it predates this, uh, the Revolutionary War. Uh, this was part of the Mayflower Compact. Uh, this was a harvest uh, festival uh, that in a way it seems to me already acknowledged what Washington would later explain with more clarity, that uh, we ought to have gratitude for our bounty, uh, that uh, circumstances – uh, that uh, account for our prosperity are to a great degree outside of our control. Uh, and uh, that God that controls that is uh, he to whom we, sh- we ought to look up, that this food is a reflection of his uh, mercy and generosity towards us. It's not just us. It's not just our will. It's not just science. But there's a, rela- there's, there's a chain of being uh, between citizens and God. But Washington, in a way, formalizes it. Um, and he has, I would recommend to all of our listeners to read his uh, Thanksgiving Day proclamation, which is very short and it's very beautiful. And uh, what he says is that we shouldn't just be grateful to the immediate circumstances of our lives, just to our family, just to our friends, just to uh, the bounty on the table, but to the nation itself. The nation safeguards this. Uh, it was uh, due to our citizens' reason he says, that this nation was created. But that's not enough. Uh, It went through all sorts of perilous circumstances to rebel against a great empire, and the chances were slim. And he uh, he says that a providential God must have assisted us in this. And it won't be just through our will or our designs, but through, again, his providence that this nation is safeguarded and protected. And so he wants us to raise our regard up to a kind of... um, non-sectarian, Christian, but not necessarily Christian God, in recognizing that we're frail, and that we're imperfect, and that we don't uh, uh, control all things all at once, and that uh, this is a day for us to recognize um, that frailty. And so in that regard, it's a holiday that is against self-satisfaction. It's a holiday against pride. Uh, It's a holiday that um, should uh, uh, compel us to reflect on the problems and errors of pride and self-satisfaction and know that there is a nation that is protected by a providential God that allows for all of the things that we enjoy, our prosperity. Yeah, I think that's a good segue for another question we have for you, Arthur, and that's that there is a religious aspect to thanks, as you just said. And so when I'm grateful, it's to God that I'm thanking for all of my blessings. And uh, in this day and age, as the left attacks religion, do you think Thanksgiving is next on the politically correct hit list? It might be, but uh, on the other hand, uh, in a way, our uh, recent celebrations of Thanksgiving have become so private and domestic that there's almost nothing left to attack. Are you going to attack Turkey and just, you know, a day off from work? I mean, in other words, it's become it's, – it's lost its meaning to such a degree. Um, but I like the question because it raises a, a, a broader problem, which is 
this, that um, if we are to have gratitude, we must be uh, grateful to someone or to an entity. But the left constantly teaches that this country and history in general is just a series of errors that have led to cruelty after cruelty after cruelty. The past is just this kind of mindless genocide. And if that's the case, then you can't really be grateful to your nation. Whatever you experience, you must account for as something incidental or accidental. So you can't be grateful to it. On the other hand, progressivism also teaches that I don't know if progressives still believe this, but certainly it, the, the founders of it did, that um, there's a kind of arc of history, that there are abstract forces in the universe that move history in a certain direction. If that's the case, and history is just this impersonal abstract force, you can't be grateful to history. It hasn't done anything for you. It's not providential. It doesn't care for nations or individuals. It has no intellect. And so therefore... What are you left with if you are a true believing progressive who believes in those two doctrines? To whom can one even be grateful? Where in your daily experiences or in those moments when you look up to the thing that you worship, i.e. history or an ugly past, where would you learn how to be grateful, to what to be properly grateful? And so the problem becomes if you can't be grateful to these abstract forces, if all of history is just this kind of uh, mindless slaughter, then what that means is that uh, progressives think that they alone, some of them alone, have special knowledge about where history is going. And therefore, they're not grateful to anybody. They're anointed. Others should be grateful to them. They're the only ones with a vision. And this leads to all sorts of uh, inhuman cruelties I mean, it was a similar psychology that, um, for example, that uh, started uh, the Soviet Union, special knowledge of abstract forces of history. So the question is, um, where for that section of America that doesn't believe in God, where can you inspire, where can you um, begin to form a person that is capable of gratitude? And that's a huge problem. Yes, yeah, certainly a profound question for for our listeners uh, to think about, and and I think it's a you know one of those things, Arthur, where uh, as we see events play out on a day to day basis, we we look at those events and ask that that question to ourselves often. You, you know, following up on on Michelle's question, I I, I want to again go back to history because it was. It was Washington who first made this proclamation in 1789, but it wasn't until Lincoln formalized it that it became a, a federal holiday. And what was it about that period of time and, and, and even Lincoln's proclamation, which also referenced, referenced God, the almighty being, um, that, uh, that, that it took so long or that it, it, it took Americans that, that time to really embrace this tradition. What was there, and our, our, our colleague Carson Holloway has written on this for the Daily Signal, the Heritage Foundation's news site, uh, talking about church and state. Is church and state really at issue here when it comes to Thanksgiving? So it's not about the separation of church and state. Uh, all of the founders thought that, um, look, uh, a free people cannot be free unless they are a moral people, and they cannot be a moral people unless they are a believing people. And so this holiday is meant for believers to deepen their belief. And it became a federal holiday, oddly enough, I don't know how to make sense of this, but it became a federal holiday from what I understand uh, with FDR. 
So in other words, with Lincoln and all presidents afterwards, this was an informal proclamation. But what we understand as a federal holiday, i.e. the government shuts down and all of the sort of entities that uh, correspond to the government's schedule also shut down on that day. That happened uh, under FDR. So it was a progressive. A pro- uh, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and if I understand the history correctly, it was FDR who actually wanted to move it from the fourth Thursday of November to the third to increase more shopping days between the holiday and Christmas. So not exactly yeah. a, a uh, you know godly type of impersonation of the, the holiday. Yeah. So uh, look, so, so maybe so maybe the problem is that once uh, a holiday becomes a federal holiday, it's lost its meaning. Perhaps. Okay, I can't let you guys go without asking one more question because it's Thanksgiving and we can end our conversation with Arthur on a light note. I need to know how everyone is spending their Thanksgiving. Well, uh, lucky for me, uh, my parents have recently moved here, and uh, from where? From Atlanta, where I was raised, and so my parents, my wife, and I my uncle and his wife, my aunt, and my first cousin who recently have a child, uh, all of us are going to be together on Thanksgiving at my parents' house. Well, I have many fond memories in upstate New York of gathering at um, at, at the family's house uh, over over the years, and it's uh, it's really an honor that we'll be able to host Thanksgiving at our house this year. So, unfortunately, first my time? Pa- my parents won't uh, first time in the in, in our new house, but uh, not the first time ever. Yeah. Uh, uh, my parents won't be able to make it, but my in laws will all be there. Um, my wife's parents and her brother, uh, brother, my brother in law and sister in law and her uh, sister. So. So it should be great, and and the the great thing about it, Arthur, is is now that we have children, um, teaching them some of the principles that we talked about on on today's program, as, as you referenced, uh, Michelle. I mean, I know that it, that's one of the things that I feel is really important, um, and I think that they do. You know, in fairness to our school system, I think they they do attempt to do this, but it really is, I think, the responsibility of parents to really uh, embrace that and and talk to the the kids about the historical. Uh, aspect of it. Well, you know, uh, my family and I immigrated here from the former Soviet Union, from Moscow. I was born there. And uh, this is our first Thanksgiving together in the D.C. area. But before, uh, every year, we would go to the same house and it would be uh, a bunch of Russian emigres there. And the conversation during dinner was dominated about figuring out the extent to which this is such a special country. Immigrants of the first generation feel this because they still have a direct memory of what they left. And so there's no discussions about sort of small talk, career, or whatever it is. They're always focused on what uh, is so remarkable about this nation. I think that's a great note to to close on and, and something that I would encourage our listeners to think about as they celebrate Thanksgiving this year. And now for our Ask the Experts segment, we're turning it over to Ginny Montalbano, who has spoken to Josh Maservi, an expert at the Heritage Foundation, about what's happening in the African country of Zimbabwe. Ginny? Thanks so much, Rob. Josh, thank you for being with us today. We're excited to have you on. I know that the situation in Zimbabwe is something you've had your eye on for a while. I think it was almost a year ago you had a report uh, out on the president there and sort of some observations you had. So for our listeners, why don't we start with you summarizing what has happened in Zimbabwe the past week or so? Sure. So um, a 
about a week ago, the Zimbabwean military launched um, a coup in, inside that country. The military claims it's not a coup, but um, they have uh, arrested the, the president as well as his wife, Grace Mugabe, and a number of other uh, sort of senior politicians within the ruling parties on OPF, and they've taken over the state broadcaster, uh, things of that nature. So it's it's a coup. Um, now, thing the situation is very fluid still. We're not entirely sure uh, what this is going to, what the final um, dis- political dispensation will be. But it does appear that Robert Mugabe, who is unequivocally one of the world's worst rulers, uh, is on his way out despite his his continued defiance. He's resisted um, the military's calls for him to resign as well as the population's calls, uh, and his own party now has turned on him. But uh, there was a deadline of noon today for him to, to resign, um, and that deadline obviously has passed, and he has not resigned. So we're still waiting to see what the final outcome will be. And on that note, you know, some people might say this is great because, as you said, he and his wife are terrible people. But on the flip side, how do we know that whoever replaces them won't be as bad or worse? Yeah, so this is a, a, a the central question that I have right now, and I think many people have about this situation. You're absolutely right. Robert Mugabe and his wife Grace are appalling. There's just no other way around it. But the military that has placed him under arrest and is trying to force him out uh, is not a some sort of staunch defender of human rights mm-hmm. and democracy. This is the military actually traditionally has been a source of support for Robert Mugabe. The military flipped on him when it seemed like their preferred succession candidate, Emerson Monagagua, who was the vice president until earlier this month when he was sacked by Robert Mugabe, uh, was losing out in the succession battle to Grace Mugabe. Uh, so the military took a very dim view of, of that uh, maneuvering because they they prefer Monagagua. That's, that's their candidate that they want to see take the reins after Robert Mugabe inevitably leaves. Uh, he is 93 years old, so there was already um, a sense that he and, – and he was clearly getting frail. So there was a sense that there was a succession coming soon. And so the military wanted Monagagua. Robert Mugabe wanted Grace Mugabe, his wife. Uh, the military stepped in to, to install their preferred candidate. This is obviously huge news and something that we're watching closely. So here in the U.S., is there a role we're playing or that you see the Trump administration playing? Or right now, is it more just observing and kind of seeing what happens? I think we're in a observe, wait and see mode right now because, again, the situation is very fluid. We're not quite sure how this is going to end. I do think Robert Mugabe is, is gone. That, that seems okay. like one way or another he this is over for him. But who's going to replace him? It'll probably be Monagagua, but will it be in a coalition government with some mm-hmm. opposition members? What will that exactly look like? Hard to know. So I think the the U.S. government, as I said, is waiting to see how this will all shake out. I'm sure they are behind the scenes encouraging everyone to resist violence and to make this um, as productive, I guess, a transition mm-hmm. as possible and certainly trying to push this whole transition towards an end state that gives the Zimbabwean people a real voice in their the next government. They haven't had one since 1980 when Robert, they haven't had a voice uh, in the government, mm-hmm. a real voice in the government since 1980 when Robert Mugabe took power. So this is absolutely an opportunity. 
but the the challenge is it remains very difficult, and I'm sure the U.S. policymakers, U.S. policymakers, are, are grappling with uh, how to take advantage of the opportunity while um, trying to ameliorate some of the challenges that could come that could arise from this. Now, if you had to make a prediction for the next major thing you think we'll see come out of Zimbabwe in the next week or so, what do you think that would be, and what would it entail? I. Th- think it will be well so the quickest way to look foolish is to make <laughs> make predictions but uh I'll I'll give it a go anyways um yeah I think Robert Mugabe will go okay. I, I think he's done uh no doubt he still has some constituency within the country but all the all of his major pillars of of power and support have been knocked away it appears again Zano PF has expelled him from the party and his wife uh they've they've emplaced uh, Monagagua as the head of Zanu and the military, as we discussed earlier, has turned on Robert Mugabe. So I don't see too many options left for him mm-hmm. other than for him to just be remain intransigent and force the military um, or ZANU to remove him, to forcibly remove him from office. That gets dicey because then this facade or this illusion that it's not a coup is, mm-hmm. is entirely gone. And then that might provoke a regional response. The one thing that African rulers don't like is a coup because mm. they all fear them themselves. Right. So they are trying to establish very strong norms against right. coups. So uh, that could get uh, the military into trouble with the, the region if 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 it's an overt coup. That's so I, I think that's what Robert Mugabe is banking on. He's just digging in mm-hmm. and hoping that... The military has to back down because they don't want to uh, be seen carrying him out of the presidential (laughs) office or whatever will have to happen. Well, it's certainly an interesting situation to watch. Thank you so much for coming on. I know you had a great uh, op-ed on The Daily Signal last week sort of summarizing this, and I recommend it to all of our listeners. Josh, thank you again so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you.